Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 276 The Artistic Path is the Crooked Path. We're joined this week by visual artist and programmer John F. Simon Jr. to discuss his search for the source of creativity and the way that search has converged with the Buddhist path of practice. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn. And today I am joined by a very special guest, John F. Simon Jr. John, it's great to have you on the show. So glad you could take the time to speak with the Buddhist Geeks today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to share a little bit of, of the backstory of how I got in touch with John. We did a little bit of meditation work together. You were in our first cadre of the Life Retreat program. And uh, very quickly I learned that you have this incredibly rich uh, artistic background that's not just as a professional artist, but also as a contemplative. And as I spoke to you more and more about um, your, your practice of drawing and your practice of art, the more I realized what a cool topic this would be to explore on Buddhist Geeks. Um, such, a, such a great pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm really excited to, uh, to explore this with you more. I wanted to mention that you are a computer-based artist, or maybe you're <laughs> most well-known for that. That's um, right. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what, how does one get into computer-based <laughs> art? Because you, you got into this well before it was popular. I mean, I think it, like in, at least in the 80s, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, I, it, uh, I was doing uh, photography and uh, printmaking, especially silkscreen. Uh, this was before uh, uh, any personal computers. So I was, I was studying art, but I was also studying earth science. Uh, and I have a, a degree in geology. And uh, sometime around 1984 in the spring, uh, I saw this little box on a desk, which was the original Macintosh, and I saw McPaint, and, uh, and uh, something clicked, and I knew that I would be spending a lot of time uh, uh, working with uh, software and drawing on, that, on a system like that. And at that point, did you sort of switch over to a digital medium, or is it a gradual process? Yeah, it was, well, it was gradual because they, it was, you know, those machines were really expensive and hard to get, and they didn't do that much. But I, uh, I was in an um, earth science program that, um, that had an affiliation with NASA, and they were using um, digital uh, satellites to photograph the Earth in a program called Landsat, and also to photograph Mars. Uh, uh, which was the Viking Orbiter program, and so I was drawn to those programs for the for the um, in fantastic images that they were creating, but also because I was learning how to program a computer in order to do the work to process those images and study them. So uh, I was I was uh, both drawn uh, to work like that for the visual aspects, but also the you know it gave me the uh, skills and training to program a computer. Very cool. And I wanted to mention, just so people have a, a sense of the kinds of things that you have done, uh, on the commercial side, uh, a lot of people might be familiar with uh, Bjork's new um, interactive album app called Biophilia. And you programmed one of the songs and one of the kind of uh, the apps within the app. And it also had a geology-based uh, exactly. thing to it. So I can see why... I, uh, suddenly it all is starting to make sense. <laughs> That's why they drew me in. Yeah, that was a Scott Snibby 
uh, project for Snibby Interactive. They, they've done some amazing work, and they had an idea to make a music album with Bjork uh, where all of the tracks would also have an app. So that was a, that was a fantastic project. Yeah, it was really cool. When I, when I first looked at it, I had the sense that, you know, in a certain way, this is sort of the future, or at least one possible future for interactive music experiences. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, we, you know, the promise has always been there for expanded uh, experience, music, imagery, interaction, uh, poetry, writing, drawing, all, all integrated. And uh, we're starting to see things like that. It's, it's an exciting time. Nice. And then I wanted to kind of jump right into one of the most interesting things, uh, at least in my mind, in, in what I've seen in your own practice of art and drawing, which is that you sort of developed a kind of contemplative drawing practice. And I wondered how that came about to begin with. Okay. Well, um, I was uh, beginning to uh, think about software as a kind of creative writing and so I was, uh, you know, not a, not a software, not as a solution to a mathematical problem, but recognizing that the person that writes the software controls what you see, how you interact, there's an author there. And, and so it's a kind of creative writing process. Uh, and so a lot of my software artworks, which were, you know, made on stripped down laptop computers that were hung on the wall, explored these themes color color mixing as a kind of uh, dynamic theory or uh, uh, emergent behavior. Uh, so the question became, how do you get the computer, which is just executing this list of instructions, to do something creative? And, uh, and uh, it became more and more important to study the model uh, that I was writing about as, as much as it was important to study the new algorithms for emergent behavior. So I sat down in uh, 1999 with some cards and I began to improvise and I thought, well, I'll just draw anything. I'll just doodle and I'll just draw anything I can. And then I will kind of try to watch what I'm doing while I'm doing it spontaneously while I'm just doodling along and see if I can come up with some generalized rules or some expert system for the way that I'm improvising. And so that's more or less how it started. And like I say, I'd like to say, it's, uh, it, was the, it was the wrong question, but the right answer, because, in fact, the complexity of uh, that um, decision-making is just incredible and f- far beyond what I've been able to uh, uh, make into rules. But the process of, of self-observation started to open some doors, and that's where the contemplative part came from. And before you started doing this, to sort of uh, internal study of I didn't completely <laughs> understand internal study of emergent systems or something like well, that. Well, I just I would just say if you just sat like you, you you would sit down. Let's say you sat down or I sat down with a piece of paper and just drew whatever we felt like drawing. Why why did we draw that? Why why would and your drawing would be different than mine? So could I could I come up with some rules for where that was coming from or why I chose to draw that way? And that focused me, that turned me, you know, turned me around to look at my own, you know, motivations, volition, you know, my own intentions. Mm, okay. That, that, that's what set me on that path. And then by practicing that over and over again, you know, I wasn't really getting anywhere in terms of making a, a computer program that would solve that. But I was, you know, I was getting the benefits of this kind of, you know, uh, inward looking, calm, detached, you know, practice. Okay, really interesting. So when you say it was it was the wrong question but the right answer, 
Yeah. Tell me, tell me about the answer. Tell me about what started <laughs> to emerge as you, as you began that kind of self-observation through drawing. Uh, I found it to be very similar to uh, uh, the kinds of things that co- come out in um, sitting practice. You know, you go through a f- phases where strong uh, uh, emotional experiences will emerge, uh, uh, annoyances, uh, you know, personal things, and then and then as you go, uh, uh, the your view becomes broader. You sort of leave that uh, part of yourself behind. And uh, you get into more um, imaginative things, for instance, or you find yourself cur- curling down and following one thought for a while. So um, eventually, and it took, it took uh, lots of years to get to, but then eventually uh, you get that focused and you get a style. Uh, and then um, I think some you know, new things, some information, some worlds start to emerge. This was a daily practice as well, right? Yeah, this yes. Be- this became a daily thing. You didn't start with that intention, though, right? Uh, I did. Ha- I did have in mind when I began that I should draw every day. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there was a discipline or a, yeah, there a was dedication a, in, the, the in, the, in the in the in the beginning. I kind of had to push myself to find the time, and now I now have to tear myself away. But yeah, there was a there was a there was a little bit of a discipline because I wanted to. I wanted. I said, "This is my. I need to solve this to get my advance my work, and so I got to. I've got to commit the time to it." Okay, I got gotcha. you. I had and, some 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 business oriented justification somewhere in there. That, yeah, in the beginning, I mean that that's a good motivation, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so, if you were to look back now, um, starting in '99, it's now 2013, 14 years. Yeah. In in the especially in the early years, what sort of patterns? Like now that you look back, what kind of patterns did you see emerge in both the drawing and also in your inner experience? Yeah. Um, in the beginning it was more rigid and it was more logical. And, um, also as I improvised forward, I tried to push the drawing in the beginning, try to push it more to something recognizable. I try to, I try to push it toward a subject in the, in early on. Uh, and, um, later I began more to trust, uh, and just to believe that if I just really let go and let go, that it, it wouldn't deteriorate into, into, I didn't know what, there was a fear there that had to be let go of. Uh, so finally you could just improvise and, and trust that something was going to be coherent and emerge. And so now I improvise in that way. And really it's a joy to let go and uh, the real surprise is that things do emerge, and sometimes even coherent figures and subjects emerge. And that's and so I don't I don't really consider what it is that's coming out on the page until really late, or till I say the drawing's done, and then uh, and then I try to look at it and say, hmm, where what is that one? <laughs> What's the story there? Mm, really interesting. And were there particular like insights that happened as you went along, or were there particular shifts that happened? Yeah, after yeah, which true. things really changed? Yeah, it's true. There, there have been about, I'd say, four or five what I'd call like major phases of, uh, of s- symbols that have come out. And sometimes I get to a symbol, uh, which I would call a totality symbol. It's like a, like a symbol that sort of summarizes on as many levels as I can what I think, I don't know what you'd say, is going on or the zeitgeist or whatever. So it tries to capture something bigger than me and something at my scale and something that's going on inside of me. So in the beginning, it was, uh, there were um, like tile patterns. There were symmetric patterns. And the patterns kept, uh, kept dissolving, kept going apart in the drawing. So there'd be a portion of the, 
symmetric pattern that would be coherent, and then it would the other parts of the drawings that would fly apart. And I went so far as to make a software artwork called Swarms, where the patterns formed and unformed and like that. And then um, uh, around uh, September, when I was in New York City, there was this you know big event uh, with the uh, World Trade Center, and that and that uh, after that it shifted, and the pattern that no more dissolving pattern. So in some way that was like I don't know what. <laughs> was there was a pattern bursting apart in the drawings, and then the, and then that changed, and then it went into some, um, I would say, like more biological forms, uh, and I was caught up in a kind of this kind of Turkish pattern uh, done with ovals, which sometimes reemerges, and I, I was caught up in that pattern for a little while, uh, and um, I made a piece of software about that, and then that led to uh, up to about the time my son was born, and uh, and then that pattern shifted out. So, uh, but there's other things that go on at the same time. I don't want to say I'm, that's all that goes on, but, but I often get a pattern that, that becomes persistent for a very long period of time in most of the drawings, or it'll be the kind of immediate tendency that I'll have, and I'll go through and I'll make larger artworks that um, reflect that. Uh, and a lot the show uh, in 2007, and again, my solo show in 2010, were all derived from... Uh, blowing up and and making larger uh the smaller drawings that were persistent so, so somehow i felt like what becomes persistent over a long time in the drawing is something significant how are you then tying that to or, or do you connect that with with this contemplative process how, how are you making sense of of these pattern shifts um which are obviously not just happening in the drawing but they also have like a an interior correlation in your experience like your subjectivity is somehow tied yeah. to this that's, yeah that's really true. fascinating yeah and i yeah i've been looking for maps uh to to try and uh to try and uh explain that or to follow that and i went through a lot of um uh psychology uh i read a lot of uh, carl jung to look at uh, his thoughts about the unconscious but it wasn't until i got into the eastern practices advaita vedanta and and uh, buddhist meditation that there were some records that showed uh uh like you're saying that kind of kind of um typical patterns that emerge if you if you move inward or look inward so um the one recent one that came out of that the life retreat because we had a uh special guest daniel ingram came one week and i end up reading his um his book and he gives a very specific map and you can you can find that uh, map in the in the you know those phases of of uh thought uh, in the drawing process as you go. Okay, that's really interesting because uh, many people who listen to Buddhist Geeks probably know of Daniel Ingram and, and he is a map, uh, I might call him a map monger. Um, yeah. He's very <laughs> into the maps and he's got, a, I think what you're describing is the progress of insight map. Um, t- tell me a little bit, uh, and we can just go real geeky here. If, if people don't follow, you know, um, it might be helpful to go listen to some of the interviews we've done with Daniel. But I mean, this is really interesting because you're coming from a very different background and then you're picking up these kind of Eastern contemplative maps, which have been around for a long time. And, and tell me about the connections you started seeing between some of these, your experiences and some of these sort of uh, Buddhist uh, models or Buddhist maps. Okay. I've been thinking a lot lately, actually very, very much in the last uh, uh, month or so about, um, about dependent arising. And there's a lot of writing about that because I'm ultimately what I want is not to master contemplative practice, but I want to know 
the source of the creativity. I want to know where these ideas are coming out of and what, what it is and what shape it is and how I work with it because this is, this is the thing that I've had my whole life is this need to do creative work. And so my work has become this kind of study of that. So um, I, I looked at the um, dependent arising uh, and how it talks about one thing that happens in the world uh, affects one thing that happens in your body and, you know, how you're it, it, it's kind of a map of how emotions and thoughts arise. And that's that's really what I, uh, I wanted to think about. And there was a set of work that I did uh, in um, 2009 that led to the show in 2010 where I was I was drawing these rectangular forms that overlapped each other and they kind of formed an oval, the, all the overlaps. They would go all the way around and I was calling them cycles. And so one, uh, one rectangle on top of another rectangle on top of another all the way around. And um, this, uh, this looks to me now like this map of dependent arising. Because I envisioned them as this flow. And in fact, I drew a river along the, and then crossing the rectangles. It's probably hard to visualize. But the, the river went around the cycle. And I used to talk about the river being this, uh, you know, basically our, our conscious thought. So you'd, you'd follow the river along from rectangle to rectangle in this sort of uh, course of dependent arising. And, of course, it ends up being a cycle itself. That's what comes out of that. It, you, the de- dependent arising makes a cycle itself. And I worked with that for quite a while. And I kept drawing cycle and cycle and cycle for months. I was drawing these cycles. And finally I thought, uh, why am I drawing these cycles? And then I thought, well, maybe it's the thing inside the cycle that, uh, that um, is what's trying to form, that it's not the cycle itself, but it's the negative space inside. And then these um, profiles started to come out and, and uh, emerge. And what I saw was that the self, I'm calling it the self, this profile that was the center of these cycles, which was really only formed by all of the things going around it, uh, was, was coming out. So this, the self being the product of the cycle of dependent arising. And that seemed to be a, a teaching that matched up, you know, it sort of clicked for me then, like, oh, maybe the way I'm thinking about how, whatever, how, how I'm, the, because I'm focusing on how my creative activities are arising and trying to note that and draw that on the paper, it's actually being, it's actually reflecting in some way something that's really happening. I think any sense to <laughs> Yeah, and, and I'm thinking, you know... Uh, I, mean, I mean, could it really teach you that? Could you really learn that? You know what I'm saying? Could it really be? But, I, but I, I did have a real deep sense of the self being the construction of our thoughts from that drawing process, that coming out that way. Mm. Sometimes I think one hears uh, statements like, you know, my running is my meditation practice or... Right. Um, exactly. whatever it is. And, and I think for most people that have a, a serious uh, practice of some sort, you know, they kind of recognize that as being just a way that people can kind of relate to what, yeah. what one's doing. But what I hear you describing is very different than that. I mean, yeah. it sounds like in a lot no, of I, ways I that know. is a meditation practice, but it's very different. That, that's what, so when I went to the life retreat, I was trying to find some kind of confirmation like that. So I know when I told you that in the beginning, it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's his running or something. And I, and I think that there's an aspect of that. But, but I, I, was get, I mean, I wouldn't be in that if I wasn't getting the phenomenon. I'm there to figure it out. So, so I was led in. I mean, I wouldn't be in contemplative practice if that wasn't happening. Yes. I would be, I would be in, back into programming or something. But so there it was. And I just want to find out if that is that really happening? Is that really what's coming up in the thoughts? And is that really coming down? But when you taught me about noting and I and I and I have thought about that a lot. Um, and, and that's also uh, uh, one of Ingram's big things is that that uh, 
is that uh, you sit and you note and you and you and you and you even had us practice that you you watch what comes up in your mind and then you kind of label it I, i'm hearing things i'm seeing you know whatever feeling the chair like that you note you note everything that's going on but for me it's 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 direct like brain to hand so um, i call it i start calling it marking practice this drawing started calling it marking because it's going right from the impulse to the hand and that's also another way it works and so you know you, 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 you some people draw to music that's an exercise you get in drawing class sometime so you put on fast music and you make little lines or you put slow music and you make loopy lines but what is it if you sit and and look into your thoughts and then what comes up yes so uh, i mean correct correct me if i'm off here but it sounds like when you're doing this marking practice there's a process of going, sitting with a blank card or blank canvas. Right. And then you're sort of in a certain way just letting something come out and you're noticing from where it's arising or what the intention is or what the motivation is that's driving the, the movement yeah. of your hand across the page. Is that, is that sort of accurate? It's true, and it's not one thing, and it's never, it's not the same thing. That's the beauty. In 14 years, it's never been the same. That's the really, uh, the thing that gets you, you know? Yeah, but basic, basically, you're letting it come out, but sometimes you're more self-conscious, and sometimes you're less, and sometimes you're tired, and sometimes you're on it, you know? And, some, and it's always the times when you're really in a good state, when you're really in a good meditative state, and you're really not thinking, and you're really not present, that the drawing comes out in a way, and it blows your mind, because you can make a reading on it. And maybe it is that you're just making it up, but you're just making up the drawing too. So what does that mean, really? I don't know. That's what I'm here to try to understand. Mm. And, you know, as you're describing this practice, it, it strikes me that one, one very different thing in, in, in how you're approaching this is that your, your interest or your motivation to start this wasn't about trying to, like, eliminate suffering or, or get to some sort of <laughs> enlightenment experience. Like, it was very much about creativity. Could you talk yeah. a little bit more about about that and why that drive is actually something that, that could lead one into this very deep introspective process? You know, uh, I, in the beginning it was art and science. You know, I was reading Leonardo magazine and, and there's a lot of groups, uh, especially in computer graphics at that time and SIGGRAPH that, uh, that are there about combining technology and art. And I could never, I liked it a lot and I like a lot of the things that go on in technology art, but I could never, it was never totally synthesized for me. And then finally I realized somewhere along the line that, you know, they're categorically separated. So if you talk about science and art, just because they're made into separate categories, you can't, you can never totally resolve. And where's the resolution of this, the thing that you love about discovery in science and the thing that you love about discovery in art, it's in creativity. You need to talk about something that, that's, a, I don't know what you'd say, a larger, more encompassing in the Venn diagram. <laughs> So I went back into creativity, and that's when I started to think about, well, where, where is it, why is it that I feel every day I want to make something or discover something? And there, that's the gateway to that path. That's how you, that, then you start into this kind of self-contemplation. You start to look inward to say, you know, who is it that's thinking? <laughs> who is it that's creating? Where, and are the ideas coming from inside me? Am I just making it up? Or is it, you know, some external information being transmitted to me? There's lots of great theories and I went to every source that I could find that would try to work with those ideas where, where our ideas come from, where our information comes from. And so, I, so you know, I think that that's, to go back that way in the creative practice is, is, a, is a way of opening up. And then I thought I was going to get to the source. I thought I was going to find the source of creativity in myself, that there was going to be like the, 
you know, the, this nugget there. And all it would have to do then is mine that. And that would be, you know, my, my work as a creative artist would be, you know, so much easier that I would just mine this creative source. But as you go back into the, into the creative source, it doesn't get any more narrow and you can't use any reductionism at all on it. In fact, it, it broadens into your whole life, you know, and you realize that, first of all, everything influences your creativity. And then every venue is a place where you can exert, you know, creative choices. And so, uh, so if you're, if you're really practicing the creative work, you know, the way you speak to someone, <laughs> the, what you eat in a restaurant, you know, the, how you decorate a room, this kind of things, they're all, they're all, they're all part of being involved in creating mm. even more broadly, the motivation for nature, you know, constantly is to, is to. You know, plants go to seed. You know, animals have more animals. So that's all creative practice. We're all out there, you know, creating. And that's life is create, creative in that way. So it broadens it again, and then you're and then you're thinking about your connectedness in the environment and and what you're creating and how I'm, I'm having children and I'm creating and continuing this like process of life. And so just a simple consideration of what you want to draw today can you know lead you backwards into all that. What I find so interesting in what you're saying is that you had this idea going in about trying to find the source yeah. of creativity. And I, I can't help but notice a parallel for a lot of meditators and for myself included that people usually come in with a sense of I'm going to find, you know, awakening yeah. or I'm going to find yeah. enlightenment uh, yeah. and I'm going to be there to witness it or be there to observe it. Yeah. Um, and somehow if I find it, then I'll be, I'll have it and I'll yeah. be able to like, be stable in it. I just I can't help but hear parallels, you know, in what yeah. you're describing. Well, that, very that, interesting. I think that's the magnet. That's what drew me toward the contemplative practice was that the dialogue seemed to me after reading. I mean, I'm telling you, I read in all fields to look to look for something similar, and that was that was something that resonated. I could find a resonance in contemplative practice, and of course, because people are sitting calmly and letting thoughts arise, and then working with those thoughts. Now, now one thing that comes to mind here and, and I think it's perhaps an important place to explore especially for folks like yourself who are really at the edge of multiple disciplines is in what ways are some of these different approaches in what ways do they reveal something different about yeah. life um, and since you've really gone deeply into you know many disciplines art you know technology contemplation how are you seeing those different fields and what they reveal as, as being different. Do you notice differences there? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, this, there's all, there's all, I don't know. There's all different flavors. It's like, uh, I, I've thought about this a lot. Like I'll sit, I'll sit in meditation, uh, you know, and, um, do no noting practice or just, uh, just watching thoughts with no pencil. And, um, that goes somewhere that, that's that's something, and those and the maps that you see, the generally the maps that you see in Vipassana and the Theravada Buddha's maps, they they're pointing you to something. They're pointing you to a place, uh, uh, which is you know um, freedom or a certain kind of openness of thought, uh, a certain kind of lack of suffering. And that, but as John Dato Lori says, the artistic path is the crooked path. And so, I, you know, I've crossed those little uh, towns. But uh, as you're suggesting, there are little outposts uh, there that aren't necessarily what we'd say like the ultimate goal of Buddhism. 
but are still pretty interesting places to hang out and interesting people. And um, yeah, you get somewhere in the mastery of drawing, and uh, you start to reveal uh, kind of inner worlds and inner logics that are that are uh, pretty fascinating. I think the same thing happens when you uh, construct a scientific theory or when you get into a computer program. I mean, when I'm in a program and I'm thinking about writing a traffic simulation, for instance, I'm li I'm living in that, and so all my choices about how the buildings are represented and how the cars are represented and what the inner rules of the traffic are. I mean, it's, that you, you sort of, that's, a, that's, a, that's not an ultimate goal, but that's a stable place that you can exist and, and move around and it creates a kind of world there. And then you create that world in the software and then you exhibit that or show that or share that. And same with the drawing. And I think that the idea is that you'll go into a place in, in meditation and you'll reach a certain kind of equanimity and a certain kind of way of dealing with the world and then go back out into the world. That's the that's the end of the ox herding pictures. The last the end of the cycle and where the cycle returns. Go back out into the world with that experience and then share that. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.